Today's message is going to be part C of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And today we're going to concentrate on verses 17 to 21, which is the conclusion of the chapter. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Keep hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. 
The task of a Bible teacher is to explain God's word in a way that helps us to understand it and in a way that, that helps us to, to know how it's going to apply to us. Uh, but the thing is, when most people judge a given message, um, they judge it on, A, did it capture my attention? Right? Now, sadly, that, that often equates with, was it thoroughly entertaining and funny? Um, or B, is it scratching where I itch? In other words, you know, I've been thinking about this issue for a while and, and this issue, it's really important to me. Did that message speak to me on that issue? But the thing is, God's word, it, it isn't designed to entertain and it's not designed to soothe an agitation that I might feel. The word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what the word of God does. God's word isn't about scratching where we itch. God's word will make us itch. Um, God's word, it'll make us uncomfortable. It, it will reveal some very uncomfortable truths about ourselves. Sometimes God's word will upset us and, and it, we, it will not leave us unchanged. But when God's word leads us to repentance and we have a change in our attitude and in the change in practice, the joy of the Lord overflows in our life. And, and the five verses that, that we're studying today, that, that last slide basically, that they're a prime example of this. Now, I suspect that not too many people would have come to church today thinking, ah, I have a lot of worldly wealth and as a rich person, I'm hoping that God's going to show me today and teach me how a godly person um, who happens to be rich uses my wealth. Now, did anyone come to church with that hope? No, no. Um, but tell you what, if, if you did come to church with that on your mind, oh, I praise the Lord because it's only the Holy Spirit at work in us that's going to um, lead us to that position and you're ready to hear God's word on the matter. If not, um, this message and this Bible reading probably isn't going to scratch you where you've been itching. But my prayer is that it would be like a really sharp knife that would incise us and pierce us and open us up to a whole new realm of the possibility of how the Holy Spirit is going to be active in our lives in a way that you've never envisaged before and that it would be for the glory of God. Righto, so earlier in this chapter, um, so we covered this bit, I think it was two weeks ago, there was a word for those who want to be rich, right? They desire to be rich. They crave to be rich, right? It's obviously talking about people who do not find the contentment in Christ and they're, and they're looking to find contentment in, in other stuff and so they're craving worldly stuff and worldly wealth and this is a bad thing. And we talked about... Oops, sorry. And we talked about the evil of prosperity theology, um, that, that idea that, that appeals to a person's base desire, the, the desire of so many to have worldly riches. 
And it's that very popular teaching, God wants to bless you in your finances. God's going to give you that breakthrough that you've been waiting for. He's going to give you that promotion. He's going to give that extra income, whatever. You name, you name your base desire there, it's going to promise it to you. And, and that's the sort of teaching that is the antithesis. And I'm, going to use, I'm using that word on purpose and we'll explain it more why later on. But that simply means it is a direct contradiction it's the exact opposite of the godly teaching that we find in the scriptures and the godly teaching that we find on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet today, that is a very popular teaching. All right? So the earlier word was for those who want to be rich. Um, today's message is for those who are rich. And... Now, I, I don't presume to know your finances. Um, I do know that some of us are more rich than others. Some of us have less than others. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, ah, yes, well, this message might be for that person because they're rich. Guess what? They're probably thinking exactly the same thing about you. Um, the fact of the matter is that by world standards, every one of us is rich by world standards. Um, if I have a place to live, and if I have food on my table, and it's pretty well guaranteed there'll be food on my table every meal this week, I'm not one of the world's poor. I'm rich by world standards. Um, have you ever wondered why every time we have an election campaign, um, turning back the boats becomes an election issue for, for our election campaigns. Have you ever wondered why that is? It's because everybody wants, well not everybody, but many, many, many people want to live in Australia. Why? Well, yes, it's a safe place to live, but a lot of the people who come here claiming to be refugees, they're what we call economic refugees or financial refugees. They know that they will have a far better life in Australia. Um, even if a person has to live on welfare in Australia, they know that they'll be far better off than where, from, from where they currently reside. They know that they'll have a nice place to live. It'll certainly be a less crowded house. They won't have to fit their whole family into one little room. They'll be better fed. They'll have a better education. They'll have far, far better health care. By world standards, the very poorest Australian actually has it better and has better opportunities than, than most of the world. So let's not delude ourselves with a feeling that this passage is not scratching where it itches. Because I should be itching here. Um, as someone who is rich, I should be wanting to know what's godly living look like for me. Well, the first thing is, a godly person understands true wealth. As disciples of Jesus, as a people whose eyes are fixed on eternity, uh, we understand that true riches are, is that which endures. We're, we're talking about eternal blessings. And that's why Paul doesn't just say, oh, this is a word for the rich. Uh, because even if I have nothing in this world, I am rich. Why are we rich? because we are rich in Christ. 
And that's why he says, as for the rich in this present age, right? So he's talking about worldly riches. He's talking about money, possessions, assets, lifestyles of the rich. Some of the, the poorest of the poor in this present age will be rich beyond measure in the life to come. Not because they're poor now, but because they've been blessed to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Saviour. And for those who are rich in this present age, Paul tells Timothy to charge them. Now, that means this is a commandment that he's giving. Um, and when you read the Bible, do you actually notice commands are actually commands? Um, some folk, when they're reading the Bible, they're just, oh, yeah, if something speaks to me, if I feel that God might be wanting to me to respond in a particular way, that's when I'll take notice of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know it says it's a command, but I don't really feel God's talking to me. The whole point of a command, the whole point of when he says, I charge you, is it's a command. That means he expects that this is how we shall live. So what is the command that he's talking here? Have you ever noticed that wealth can change a person? When a person has wealth, uh, you've probably noticed that wealth has a tendency to affect uh, a person's outlook or attitude towards others. With wealth, uh, some folk will develop an elevated sense of self-worth or self-importance and an elevated sense of security. Um, isn't that a strange thing, though? Why should wealth elevate a person's sense of entitlement that makes them think, yeah, I'm worth more than what you are? So, for example, if a person's killed in an industrial accident, uh, the resulting payout for a rich person who's died will generally be much, much more than what it is for a poor person who's died. You know why? It's because... But part of the calculation of, of how the payout has worked is a person's income generating capacity. And if this person's expected to live for another 50 years and their life's been cut short, if they're a rich person in a, in a big highfalutin job, they'll probably, their payout will most likely be a fair bit more than a poor person. The rich might choose to live in a gated community so that they don't have to put up with the riffraff walking past on the street. The children might go to an elite school where they can get the very best education and the best opportunities and they're not going to have to have to mix with those urchins from the lower classes. They might like to go on a holiday on a private island where they don't have to share the beach with a bunch of bogans. Um, and the rich might not like to take no for an answer. It's The attitude is, if I can afford it, I should be allowed to have it and you shouldn't be allowed to stop me. The command is, charge them not to be haughty. You know what? Because we are rich, that doesn't mean that we're any better than what the poor are. And we don't deserve better things than the poor. And nor should we see ourselves as being elite. I've got some Christian friends, and um, I know that's news to you. Yes, I do have some friends. Um, and that might show you just how godly they are to, to befriend someone like me. Uh, loves the unlovable. But I suspect that these friends of mine might be rich. 
Um, I base that on knowing what jobs they've had and their income earning capacity for a fair while. Um, but if you meet them down the street, you'd have no idea. You'd have no idea they're rich. I'm pretty sure they probably buy most of their clothes off the rack at Target. And they, they're the sort of people who just genuinely love all people. And they connect with all people of all levels of society. When they go on holidays, you're not going to find them at an elite resort. They'll just be in a simple campsite with just the basics and hanging out with people who, from the lowest to the low. And there's just nothing haughty about them. That's what I love about them. And that's the way we all should be. The second thing is an elevated sense of security. When a person has nothing, they're totally dependent on the Lord. They have to be. But when one has money and when one has assets, that tends to be what they pin their hopes on. But the thing is, riches are uncertain. Um, they're uncertain in this life. So uh, the, the Australian stock market, I don't know if you hear this sort of stuff on the news or not, but in, in about the last two and a half months, the Australian stock market has actually dropped by 14%. Now, that's, that's significant. Um, people are now worried about that the property values might be going down, housing properties particularly. Um, and the reason they're worried is some folk have borrowed so much money to buy a home that, and now if housing, property, housing prices drop, they might find that they're left owing more money than what their house is now worth. Um, riches in this life are uncertain. Even if you put all of your money into gold, that the price of gold can drop significantly in a very short time. Um, it can be stolen too. But in the long run, riches are not only uncertain, they're worth nothing, nothing at all. A rich man filled up some ports with, with cash and gold and stuff, and he said to his wife, I'm gonna pop these up in the attic. He said, because just in case I happen to die during my sleep, and I go up to heaven, I want to just grab these ports as I, as I go by. And anyway, um, about three or four years later, he actually did die in his sleep. And his wife goes, oh, I'm going to go and see what happened to those bags of loot. And she goes up into the attic and that, sure enough, there they are still there, bags of cash and gold and stuff. She says, you stupid man. I told you you should have put them in the basement if you wanted to get them on the way past. Let's not be haughty and let's not trust in riches. But being a Christian, it doesn't mean that we take a vow of poverty either. Living the Christian life isn't about this thing we call asceticism, where we deny ourselves of all physical pleasures, hoping that somehow by me denying myself of all things, that's going to make me a better Christian and better in the eyes of God. It actually says here that we set our hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you know that the Lord wants you to enjoy your life? Some people don't live that way. The Lord wants you to enjoy your life. He wants us to enjoy the things that he provides us with. Is it a sin for a Christian to have something and to experience enjoyment in it? No, it's not. Some people um, 
there's a bit of a theology around at the moment where some folk will say, oh, no, if you get enjoyment in anything, that's an idol for you and that's idolatry. What a load of rot. Idolatry is we, where we worship another god. But if we are worshipping the one true God, to get enjoyment out of the things that he blesses us with, that's not a sin. The sin is if I don't find my contentment in Christ. The sin is if I find my contentment in these things above finding contentment in Christ. You with me? God wants us to enjoy our lives. But here, Paul is opening up to us something here which is really important. He's opening up to us who are rich what godly enjoyment of wealth looks like. Right? Now, I think we all probably have an idea of what enjoyment of wealth looks like. But he's opening up to us here what a godly enjoyment of wealth looks like. You see, as Christians, the way we enjoy what God has richly provided for us is not the same as the self-indulgence of the ungodly. Oh, I'm going to say that again. As Christians, the way that we enjoy what God has richly provided for us is not the same as the self-indulgence of the ungodly. If God, in his grace, richly provides for us, godliness in us is expressed by us richly sharing what God has provided. You with me? Right, so if it's a godly thing for God to, re to provide, it's a godly thing for us to share. Some people use the phrase, blessed to be a blessing. Have you ever heard anyone say that? And it's very true. That, that's a good summary of what's being taught here. We are blessed to be a blessing. Now, the trouble is most times that I've heard somebody say that of themselves, it's been for them to then say, yes, I'm blessed to be a blessing so I can have more and more and more and more and more and, um, and somehow I can bless other people for me having more. And, but it never actually makes it into out of the planning stage. You know what I mean? We've got to be careful that we don't just... Say, I'm blessed to be a blessing and I'm just going to accumulate my blessings so that if I ever feel led to bless someone later on, then I can do that. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. How do you enjoy using your wealth? Some enjoy using their wealth to, to amass more wealth and then they use that wealth to, to amass more wealth. And it sort of has a snowballing effect. It just keeps building and building and building. Um, some enjoying their, enjoy using their wealth to enjoy the latest gadget or the latest eye device or whatever. Um, some like to buy a nice work of art that they can enjoy viewing. Some use their wealth to travel so that they can have an adventure that they can enjoy. Some enjoy using their wealth to build an opulent mansion and surround themselves with luxuries. Different people are different, aren't they? Um, the way that I enjoy my wealth will be different to how you enjoy your wealth. Uh, what gives me enjoyment will be different to what gives you enjoyment. But a godly use of wealth will probably be very different to how we currently enjoy our wealth. Um, 
A godly use of wealth can be enjoyed much, much more than any of these things. A godly use of wealth is to do good. And you know what? We can find a lot of enjoyment in doing good. And, and it's not an impersonal good. So, for example, there are some really, really wealthy people in the world. You could probably name some of the billionaires that you, that you know of. Um, and you might even know of some of the massive works of good that they do because out of their, a small portion of their excess, some of them do a fair bit of good. But the thing is, except for maybe they might go into a very short-term thing, they might go and serve at a soup kitchen on Christmas Day or something, and of course they're all there with the photo ops to get them, or they might have a photo op at a, of them nursing some orphans in a third world country. Um, and so it looks all very hands-on for a few hours. Uh, but then after the cameras disappear, they get on their private jet, fly, to somewhere where they can get onto their luxury yacht and sail the Caribbean. It's not very hands-on at all. Do you know what I'm saying? As disciples of Jesus, we ourselves do good. We're not supposed to outsource the doing of good by delegating it to others and then paying them to do it on our behalf. We, so we don't just simply sponsor a child overseas and decide, okay, there you go, I've done my bit. Uh, we, although we might do that as well, but we also take the time personally to do good. And when we, when we realise this, this is a key part of being a Christian, is, and particularly a key part of being a wealthy Christian, is we take time to personally do good. And we plan it into our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that you personally have to pull up stumps and move to a third world country and, and set up an orphanage, unless God is actually calling you to do that. And he has called some people to do that. There's plenty of good to be done in your patch. Where God has placed you right now, there's plenty of good to be done. Sometimes I've noticed that um, the richer we get, the more what we have consumes us. And the more what we have ties us down. As we get more and more things, it takes more and more managing and it, it reduces our time. Our wealth consumes us so much sometimes that, that we just don't simply have time to go and help someone. And the richer we get, the more we then head off to spend time enjoying what we have and the less personal service we have for others. And we tell ourselves, it's not because I don't want to. I just, I just don't have time. I've got too much on. I've got too many responsibilities. I'm too busy at my job. Too much management of my business. I'm, I'm too busy in my retirement. I'm too busy in my hobby. I'm too busy in my sport. I'm too busy in my travel travels. But a godly use of wealth means that I personally do good. During the week, uh, the Courier-Mail had this cartoon of Garfield. Um, now, for those who are listening to the podcast, I'll read it to you. That we all know that Garfield is the world's most selfish cat. 
don't we? And he's pretty much, um, I think, representative of all cats. You, you can tell I'm not really a cat lover. Um, and he says, when I think about doing good and helping others, I ask myself a simple question. What's in it for me? That's so true of so many people. What's in it for me? Yeah, I'm going to do good, but what's in it for me? But a godly use of wealth means that I personally do good, not because there's anything in it for me, but because that's the way of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, a godly use of wealth is to be generous. It means to give, and to give generously means that I'm probably going to miss what I give. Now, some of the most generous people I know actually don't have that much themselves. And maybe that's part of the reason why they don't have a whole lot, because as soon as they get something, they, they give it away. Um, I remember in a church that I used to be in, there was an ordinary working class couple and they had a family with young kids and they sold their home, a home that they were still paying off. They hadn't finished paying it off yet. And they sold it so they could buy another house um, to fit their expanding family in, um, which would then leave them with an even bigger mortgage. And they said, we, we want to give some of that to God. And so they donated 10% of the sale price of their house um, to, to be used in the mission of the church. And to me, that was just so generous. Um, they, they were giving not only out of their abundance, they were giving simply because they found a way that they could. And they just wanted to be generous. Now, I, I don't know if that couple's even paid off their house yet. I, I have no idea. But for me, that, I saw that and I thought, that is so generous. But in the church, sometimes the rich need to be reminded to be generous. And I'll tell you why. It's because many of us, we, we've got a defence mechanism built into us, right? That the, the, the rich have learned through experience that they need to be careful with what they have. Because when other people know that, you're, you're, that you've got wealth, you feel like you're a target. Um, and so the wise are very aware that there's plenty of people who are more than willing to relieve you of your wealth. Uh, some folk are willing to be a sponge off of you. They, they know that there's con men out to get them. They know there's unscrupulous people who are looking to shift the wealth from them to themselves. And so when it comes to the church, uh, they might be concerned that others in the church are not going to do their fair share of donating or in sharing with the poor. And so sometimes the wealthy hold back from being generous. And I can confidently tell you that in the 30 years that I've been involved in churches, without exception, the biggest givers... Um, the most generous people in the church have not been those with the most wealth. It's never been that way in any church I've ever been in. And in fact, sometimes those who, who have the most wealth um, are being so careful to make sure they're not being taken advantage of um, and they're afraid that the, everybody's going to say, oh, the church budget is dependent on them 
that they give not only the smallest portion of what they have, but sometimes the lowest givers in the church are those whom God has blessed with the greatest capacity to give. And so God's word to we the rich is be generous and be ready to share. Now, being ready to share doesn't mean that we just share out of excess and it doesn't mean that we're just sharing from our wealth. This is about sharing life. Um, it's about letting other people use your stuff, but, but more than that, it's about bringing people into fellowship. And it's not like, oh, we're the wealthy clique over here and people just don't really seem welcome with us. It's we're open to all people. So the, the Greek word here for being ready to share is koinonikos. Now, some of you will know that, that the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And this one is koinonikos. And so the idea is about not just sharing wealth, it's about having a personal involvement and a sharing of themselves in a, in a way of fellowship. This is the sort of sharing that we're talking about. And by doing this, uh, verse 19 tells us a bit of a blessing for that, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And of course, that's just coming straight from the teachings of Jesus that we read in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So by being generous and by being ready to share, we take hold of that which is truly life which is the eternal blessing in Christ, but it's more than that. You know that life is now, don't you, right? We, we're not only living just for eternity, we're living in the now. Life isn't meant to be a drag. We're meant to get enjoyment out of life. And this is a godly thing, to have enjoyment in life. Did you know the Lord has enjoyment in, in stuff? Right? So the Lord told us that at the repentance of one sinner, there's great rejoicing in heaven. And it pleases the Lord when his people do good. That's enjoyment. And the Lord delights in his people and in their welfare. That's enjoyment. As we increase in godliness, the things that grieve God, that's going to grieve us. We generally get that, don't we? Right? We see horrid sins and terrible things, and as we become more godly, that grieves us as it grieves God, and we get that. But it also goes for enjoyment. As we grow in godliness, the things that gives God enjoyment will be the things that gives us enjoyment. And it's not just about joy, it's about enjoyment. There's two different words in the Greek. Uh, joy is something which is independent of our circumstances, right? So our joy is in the Lord and in our internal hope that we have in him. Enjoyment is about finding satisfaction as we go through life. 
Yeah, where the Bible talks most about enjoyment is in uh, a book called Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is a man searching for meaning in life. It's a man coming to the end of his life and he's looking back over his life and he's searching for meaning. And he sees one of the greatest injustices of life is to strive and work hard and acquire what we have and not be able to enjoy it. God gives us things to enjoy. And as Ecclesiastes wrestles with all of this, he comes to his wise conclusion, which takes him the whole book to get to this conclusion. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. As we become more Christ-like, we will find enjoyment in what brings God enjoyment. As the Holy Spirit in us transforms us to become more godly, we'll become more joyful, but also our enjoyment will be found in different things. We'll discover enjoyment in what God finds enjoyment gives God enjoyment. Something tells me that that God would get more enjoyment in seeing a child comforted because they've fallen over after and skinned their knee. God would probably get more enjoyment in that than driving a Ferrari around a racetrack at 200 kilometres an hour. Do you think? I think so. I think God would get more enjoyment out of sharing a meal with someone who feels like they have no friends and they're lonely. I think God would get more enjoyment out of that than, than eating at a five-star restaurant. Do you think? I think so. I think God would get more enjoyment out of me taking time out of a busy schedule to purposely visit people within the community um, and share with them about Jesus than taking an island holiday. Do you think God would get more enjoyment out of that? We couldn't too. And I think God would get more enjoyment out of me just unexpectedly turning up at the neighbour's place and having a cup of tea with them than buying the neighbour's place. I think God would get a fair bit more enjoyment out of that, don't you? You see, a godly man or a godly woman will find enjoyment out of being godly, not being haughty, um, by having a genuine enjoyment of the, of the love and the company of others from all levels of society. Um, a godly man or woman will find enjoyment out of experiencing God providing our needs, not what we want, but what we need. And have an enjoyment in doing good works and being generous being ready to share what we have and, and sharing life itself. We get enjoyment out of that. That's godliness. And the godly enjoy these things. And as we live this out, this is taking hold of that which is truly life. When you really think about it, all of the worldly cravings that so many of us have is looking for a better life, isn't it? It's add this to your life and this is going to make my life better and this is going to make, you know, it's sort of like you sit back and, ah, 
this is the life. Or you might go on an adventure and, yeah, this is truly living. Yeah? You know what I'm getting at here. Uh, Here's a few smatterings from some real estate articles and ads that I quickly scanned. Discover rural living. The good life. Your invitation to live well. A new way of life on course for retirement living. Downsize to a bigger life. What's the common factor here? What's the selling point? Spend your money for what? A better life, a bigger life. But by using our wealth in a godly way, that is taking hold of that which is truly life. Righto. So let's finish up. As we come to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy, he sums up the whole letter, but but he's really summing up especially this section of the letter, and it's very personal. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. says, as the pastor and teacher of the church in Ephesus, Timothy is going to have more than a few challenges. And the main challenge that Timothy has is dealing with false teachers. Uh, They teach what they claim to be knowledge. And and that's a very common thing in in every age. It's very prominent in the the Christian church in our age, but it's happened right throughout history. Um, Those who claim to have a special knowledge or a special revelation of God, that's where the rot sets in. Um, When somebody says, God revealed this to me, or God revealed to me that this is what this Bible passage is really saying. It's not what all you people throughout the hundreds of years of studying the Bible believe. God's revealed to me what it really believes. Um, You know what? There is no secret knowledge. You've got a Bible. It's there as plain as day for you to read and know and understand. It's all in God's word as clear as a bell. And Paul says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. It's not knowledge at all. It's irreverent. That means it's profane, unholy, unspiritual, ungodly. He says it's babble. That means it's chatter. Lots and lots of words, no spiritual depth. And he says it's contradictions. The Greek word there for contradictions is antithesis. Um, by the way, there, there is an English word which is exactly the same, antithesis. Does, any, does anybody know that word? No. You know why? Because you're not academics. Academics love to use big words um, because it can make them look smart and we go, I don't know what that means. Um, basically, it's, it means exactly the same in the Greek as what it does in the English. It means it is a direct contradiction antithesis. Um, so the thesis is the argument, it's the, it's the position that is stated, but this is the antithesis. It is the exact opposite position. And, and I've, as I've said over the last few weeks, some of the teaching being taught in churches today, especially around the topics of, of wealth, money and possessions, is exactly the opposite. It is the antithesis of what Jesus taught. It is the exact opposite. Godliness is not about getting more stuff. Godliness is not about being blessed with a breakthrough in your finances or whatever it is. 
It's a nonsense. It's a craving of our base desires. And whenever anyone teaches that, that is an ungodly teaching. Our commitment, sorry, our contentment is not in worldly things. Our contentment is in Christ and in in eternal blessings. And so Paul says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. God has made an investment into you. But the deposit, it is, it's like a treasure deposited into a, into a bank for safekeeping. It is the greatest investment that God can make into you. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings of, of Jesus and the apostles. Guard this. It's been entrusted to us. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we tuck it away and hide it when no one can see it. It means we keep it pure. We keep it true. And we profess the truth. We profess this deposit that God has invested in us. By professing false knowledge, that's swerving away from the faith. But by keeping and by professing the true gospel, the road to faith is kept straight and narrow. So the finishing words of this letter are very true. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. You know what he's saying there? We only have this blessed position through grace. Please do not hear in this message that if I'm generous, I will somehow attain salvation. That's got everything back to front. By grace, we are saved in Christ Jesus. And because we've been saved, as we become more godly, will become more generous. So, how'd you go with that? Did that scratch an itch that you've had for a while? Or has it made you itchy all over? And, and now you're keen to enjoy godly generosity and godly sharing. Just as God enjoys being generous... The godly enjoy lavishly sharing what they've been blessed with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, increase our love for you and increase our love for others and give us an enjoyment. Give us an enjoyment in doing good. Give us an enjoyment in being generous and in sharing what we have and and in sharing of ourselves knowing that this is taking hold of what is truly life. Lord, we thank you for the deposit that you have entrusted to us. Help us to hold firm to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles and help us to hold firm to to this faith that you have granted us. Help us to recognise and avoid that ever so popular antithesis of the gospel and and all false knowledge and all godless chatter that masquerades as godliness today. And as we hold on to the faith, we thank you for your promise and your pronouncement of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.